Let's uh, look at some of the main characters of uh, the story of Ruth. The first one that we look at is Elimelech. He didn't last long. Um, but his, the, the meanings of names back then were important. I mean, we name our kids after relatives usually or, you know, something. Uh, back then, names had meanings. And so um, anytime you see the E-L in a word back then, it's God. Because uh, that was one of the names of God was E-L um, in, in Hebrew. So Elimelech means uh, my God is king. However, Elimelech didn't really live that way. <laughs> he lived like, yeah, my God is king, but i got to get out of here. Uh, and then there's Naomi. Uh, Naomi was named uh, Naomi because it means sweetness or pleasantness. But she na- renamed herself Mara, which means bitterness. Uh, have we ever done that to ourselves? Huh? Yeah. God has one plan for us, has named us one way, and has called us one way, and yet we think because of our circumstances, we throw this pity party and we rename ourselves something else that God never intended us to be. And so she had to go through some things and learn some things uh, in order to realize she was Naomi, as God had called her to be to begin with. And sometimes I think we go through that same thing. We go through some stuff... We get caught up in our circumstances. We become something that God never intended us to be. He takes us through some more things and reveals himself only to show us that we really are who he said we are. And that's something we need to remember. We are who God says we are, not who the enemy or so-called friends say we are or what social media says we are. Ruth, the name Ruth means companion. uh, And we'll see that throughout this story. The name Boaz means strength is within him. Strength is within him. It's also interesting that there was uh, two towers that were uh, part of the temple when they actually built the temple. One was Boaz and one was Joachim. Um, And and so one of the the pillars outside the temple, they didn't support anything. They were just gigantic pillars. I think they were like 40 feet high or something. And uh, one of them was named Boaz and the other named Joachim. And the Boaz one means my strength is, uh, strength is within him. So, and then we have Obed, the child born right at the end. And chapter 4 is basically like a summary and a genealogy that kind of transitions to the next stage. And we learn about Obed. Obed's name means servant. And we'll find out that he becomes an important grandfather later on in his life. So now that we've looked a little bit at that, Let's talk a little bit about what happens to uh, Elimelech and his family. There was a local famine. Now, a local famine tells us a couple of things. The fact is that a lot of times in Scripture when there's a famine, it's some kind of sign of God's judgment. If it's a very local famine, it means that he has a a specific focus in mind for that judgment. So, anybody know where Elimelech and his family lived? What were their hometown? Bethlehem. Ever heard that name before? Yeah. So we know that it begins here. Elimelech and his family were living in Bethlehem. There was this localized famine, which he said he had to move his family out of the area to to help them survive. This is why... Uh, Elimelech's name, my God is king, is sometimes, 
You know, my God is king, but I better move. You know, take care of myself instead of trying to stay where God has put me. Mm. Uh, anybody? No, we won't go there. Uh, but anyway, uh, scholars believe that this whole story takes place probably during the, the time that Gideon was the judge, just because of the way things turned out, the, the uh, attacks of the Midianites, the uh, famine that was taking place, and so forth. So Elimelech leads Bethlehem and immigrates into a, a place called Moab. In the scripture, Moab is bad news for Israelites. Everywhere that the Moabites and the Israelites intersect, there's trouble. And apparently, Moabites had really, really attractive women because the Israelites kept getting in trouble every time they got near Moabite women. You know, they would intermarry with them and stuff, and then, you know, it would, it would go downhill quickly from there. Was it the women's fault? Israel were the ones that were disobeying what God had set in place. So these two sons of Elimelech, um, who are Malchon, who was married to Ruth, and Kilion, who was married to Orpah. Uh, by the way, that is Orpah, not Oprah. Uh, I know it's easy for us to transpose those letters. That's what happened on Oprah's birth certificate, by the way, in case you're wondering. They, had, they intended to name her Orpah, but it, it got transposed on the birth certificate, so she became Oprah. Uh, little side note, see. Uh, but anyway, these two guys were the sons, and apparently Moabite, uh, Moab was not a good place for Israelite men because the Scripture clearly tells us that Elimelech and both sons died while they were there. Uh, I don't know. You know, there's, there's no explanation of it in Scripture other than all the guys died. And so Ruth was left as an Israelite widow in a basically foreign, hostile-type territory. Ruth and Orpah were both Moabite women that had married, in, and there were expectations back then that they had. The, the, the way that marriage worked was that it came with a lot of baggage, even more baggage than marriage comes with today, because it involved hand, uh, lands and inheritances and responsibilities for uh, the, the children and so forth that were, were carried on in there. So, uh, he, having these, all their men die, left these women basically helpless and hopeless because back then it was a male-dominated society and the males were the ones that genealogy was passed through, the males were the ones that owned the property and so forth. And so Ruth thought it was a good idea to probably at this point head back home and uh, go back to Bethlehem where she came from. Um, after talking to the girls, Orpah decides to stay where she is. Naomi makes this pledge that we all know about, where the soul thou goest, I will go, and you know, uh, your, your God will be my God, and so forth, your people will be my people. So Naomi has this early on uh, demonstration of loyalty and fidelity and faithfulness to uh, Naomi and trying to uh, take care of her. If I get these names mixed up, it's probably because I didn't have enough coffee. But, uh, um, but they eventually heard that stuff was getting better back home, that the famine wasn't quite as bad as it used to be, and so they decide to, to go home. Oprah, Orpah, I knew I'd say that, Orpah <laughs> stays, stays in uh, Moab, and uh, Ruth decides to accompany Naomi. Now, the interesting one little interesting tidbit on the side here is 
that when they transition back to Bethlehem, it's uh, harvest season. You pick that up in the scriptures? Okay. That particular harvest season, because of the time of year it was, was in the spring. It was also the holiday, the Jewish holiday. You may have heard of it, Shavuot. Shavuot was a holiday of the harvest, but it was also a holiday that celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So it's interesting that Ruth's return to Bethlehem was also in connection with the celebration of the giving of the law. Just a, something that just so happens. And there's a lot of just so happens in the book of Ruth. Coincidences? I don't think so. But anyway, she, uh, she comes home. So then we get into this idea of uh, the kinsman redeemer. I'm not making it easy on Alex. Uh, the notes that she has are, I mean, I'm ad-libbing a lot of this stuff, so, you know. You're doing well, thank you. So, I couldn't tell if she was, or you know. She's, she's going really fast over there, but, because uh, some of the words are not actually sign language words, you have to spell them out, you know. And when we get to the Greek later on, I've already warned her about that. <laughs> so, so, anyway. It's really impossible to go through the book of Ruth and not get some kind of understanding or have some kind of understanding about the concept of the kinsman redeemer. Um, Jewish law required that a kinsman redeemer, uh, which the, the Jewish word, it'll come up eventually. I have faith. There it is. Goal. Now, if you ever watched, uh, you know, Stargate, it's not Goal. It's, it's Goal. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, you worry about these things. People go out there and say, Pastor John was talking about the Goa. Ooh, what's the? Uh, no. No. It's a... Uh, everybody that had never seen the show is going, huh? <laughs> Look it up. Google. Uh, so it's from the, the root word of a Hebrew word that means to redeem or to come to the help of or assist or rescue. And uh, that's what go, Goel, I almost said Goel. Uh, Goel means. Um, so here, he was the nearest male blood relation alive. He was supposed to redeem a widow and her land in order to preserve the family line. In other words, he was, another word, a, a way of saying kinsman redeemer is family guardian. Family guardian. Um, this involved a concept called the liberate uh, marriage. Ever heard of that one? Okay. Well, for years, you know, I, I was uh, wondering about that. I thought because it had L-E-V-I in it, it had to do with the tribe of Levi, but it doesn't. Uh, it, it's actually from Latin, which, you know, we all love Latin. Uh, L-E-V-I-R is the word for brother, okay? So, levir is brother, liveret is a brother marriage. It has to do with the concept that is covered in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses uh, 5 and 6. And we're not going to read all that. I just kind of summarized it for you in plain language. So, if a woman's husband died leaving her childless, 
It was the responsibility of the nearest relative, usually the brother of the deceased husband. But if there wasn't a brother, it was the next closest uh, kinsman to redeem the widow by taking her into his family, having a child by her, so that the name of the deceased relative might continue. That was the idea of uh, kinsman redeemer and this liberate uh, marriage. You can look up those two verses in Deuteronomy 25 for yourself if you want to. So by doing this, it may seem like a strange practice to us, but it was a way of taking care of family back then. And like I said, land and property and genealogy and all that was conducted through the male side of the family. So that's why it had to be uh, traced and connected all the way through. We know that uh, every 70 years there was this this thing in the in Jewish law where all the land reverted back to the original owner. You know about that? Okay. So it would have eventually done that, but this clarifies very specifically how the how that land is supposed to go back. Understanding this also helps us make sense of why uh, Naomi was saying to Ruth and Orpha, uh, you might want to consider not coming back with me. Because that same kind of culture was there in, in the Moabite culture. And so they, they would have had a better chance to get married among their own people and have some kind of connection where they would have some kind of continuation of lineage. Naomi knew that she was too old to have kids anymore. And we don't know how long the two ladies were married to the two brothers, but they were obviously uh, marriageable age. And so Ruth, I mean, Naomi was trying to make sure that they had a future. And she knew coming, coming back into Israel as Moabites, you know, they wouldn't have had much future. They would have probably, I mean, apparently they had this wonderfully attractive nature or whatever. They were beautiful women or something. But even that, if they were labeled as Moabites, they were probably going to be ostracized and put aside until they meet Boaz. So, understanding this allows us to understand that, why she tried to get them to stay. And uh, the only way then that they could really raise a son and continue their name would be to stay and marry uh, a Moabite man. Let me catch up on my notes. It'll help Alex. <clears throat> so, this brings us to what is a king's, kinsman redeemer. In the Jewish laws, there were three prerequisites in order for a man to be a kinsman redeemer. And these are important because you'll see in a few minutes, they also translate over into another relationship. The three prerequisites to qualify as a kinsman redeemer was, first of all, you had to be a near relative of the widow. So you had to qualify yourself as a kinsman. You had to be related to that person. That's important. Second, you had to be able to redeem the widow. In other words, you had to have the ability to perform your uh, kinsman redeemer responsibilities and duties. So a, a poor relative wouldn't be able to take on uh, something else and then not be able to provide for that widow. That would not be acceptable. So the, the kinsman redeemer had to have some kind of resources in order to be able to take care of his responsibilities as the kinsman redeemer. The next thing was you had to be willing to redeem the widow. Um, willing to, to redeem the widow. And this comes into play 
later on in the story when you you've probably read it several times, but when Boaz uh, wants to help Ruth, but he knows of another relative that's closer. And so the willingness of the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, comes into play there. The parallel and the most important, the core part of this message today is that we understand that Jesus is our kinsman Redeemer and He fits this model perfectly. He has become our kinsman Redeemer. First of all, Jesus became a near relative. Yes, He's God. Is God, has been God, always will be God. But when he became a, a, a near relative by becoming a man, physically putting on flesh, called one of those 25-cent words, incarnation. He put on flesh and became one of us. So that's, he became a, a near relative to us by becoming flesh like we are. The second part of that is that not only did he put on flesh, but he also was tempted just as we are. So he had the physical, the mental, and the spiritual nature of us. He was related to us. He could relate to us in all of those ways, in a way that as God wasn't really you know, possible because God's up here, right? Just as, as we are limited in our relationship to God by our understanding of the infinite from the finite point of view, there was this limitation is he hadn't actually put on flesh before until Jesus. He'd made apparitions, you know, like the, the angels and stuff uh, in, in the Old Testament, where we, we're told that the Son of God, like in the fiery furnace and so forth. But this is the first time he comes as a baby and starts like we start and goes through all the stuff that we go through. And so he becomes our kinsman redeemer by becoming a near relative, by being uh, tempted as we are, by coming into the flesh. It says in the, in the Gospels that Jesus got hungry. Jesus got tired. And so he knew what the limitations of flesh were. Jesus was also able to redeem us. He had the resources. Because he was sinless, it says he was tempted, but in all points he didn't ever sin. He lived a sinless life. So he had the resources, but he was sinless. And so he was able to redeem us because he was sinless. The price that was demanded for our redemption was a sinless sacrifice. So no one up to that point had ever been... That's why they had to repeat those sacrifices every year in the temple. Because no one had ever found a permanent solution until Jesus. So he was able to redeem us because he was sinless. And because he paid the price that we could never pay. He paid the price that we could never pay. Jesus' sinless blood was the price that was demanded for our redemption. The third part of this is also important, and that is Jesus was willing to redeem us. He was willing to redeem us. He laid aside His glory, the Scripture tells us. If you want to look up sometime in Philippians chapter 1, verses 5-11, through 11, and uh, chapter 2, verse 7, you'll see a, a picture of how Jesus emptied himself out. Is that word up there now? Oh yeah. The kenosis, I warned you. Uh, the, <laughs> the kenosis, that's just a Greek word that says emptying. And that's, that's what's used in, in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2. Where Jesus, in order to become one of us, willingly and deliberately, willfully 
laid aside certain attributes so that he could become one of us. Now, there's a whole different... I mean, we could teach on that for a year and still not scratch it. But anyway, by faith, we accept what the Scripture says. So, then he laid down his life. So, by laying aside his glory, he laid down his life on the cross. And therefore, he willingly redeemed us. The Scripture very clearly says, no one took his life, he laid it down. And that was part of that action of the kinsman redeemer. In other words, nobody could be coerced into being a kinsman redeemer. They had to be willing and able to take on those responsibilities. And Jesus fulfilled every one of those responsibilities to the ultimate. And so now we all can be certain that we have a kinsman redeemer. And it doesn't come through his Jewishness. It comes through his divinity of being willingly obedient to the Father to fulfill all of his plan to be obedient even unto the cross. Amen? That's what the kinsman redeemer is about. And so now we begin to look a little bit deeper into these things about the kinsman redeemer and try to get some gleanings, if you will, forgive the pun, from uh, the book of Ruth. If you've read the book, you know that the gleanings plays a, a big part in this. So, as the custom was, then Naomi sends Ruth off uh, to offer herself to Boaz. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there, you know, that, that uh, apparently, from the way things look in the Scripture, Ru uh, Naomi was not aware of Boaz and Ruth's interaction. But when she found out who it was, it put the light bulb on, even though there wasn't electricity back then. And she said, oh, that's one of our relatives. He has a possibility of being a kinsman redeemer. And so she sends Ruth into that field that night and tells her what to do, what the custom is, in order to get Boaz's attention. And from the little cartoon we saw, she got his attention. Ah! Uh, and, and then, you know, this whole thing unfolds where here's this Moabite woman, this foreign woman, this woman who was seen basically as an enemy of the people, now going into Boaz, one of the wealthiest folks around there, because he had all these fields and laborers and everything else, and able to get glean what was left. That's what gleaning was. There's, again, Levitical law. There was, there were, they had laws for everything. They wound up with over 600. Um, but one of the laws was that when you were harvesting, you had to leave the corners of the field in order for the poor and the destitute to be able to eat from those things. And so he found Ruth going behind his workers and gathering up the leftovers off the ground, the things, the, the, the tops of the, the, the uh, fruit that had not been gleaned with the whole plant when they, when they pulled it up. So she had the leftovers. That's what gleaning was about. And he was delighted uh, when he found out that Ruth uh, was Naomi's daughter-in-law. So he sets this up and he um, came to the idea of, of going and being her kinsman redeemer after she'd asked him. But there was a hitch because he knew about this other guy that was a little bit more closely related. Now, it doesn't explain any of that, so we kind of have to go, mm, okay. Uh, but it doesn't explain. Elimelech could have been 
uh, Boaz's uncle, uh, you know, uh, but it doesn't really give us those details. But anyway, we know that there was one relative that was closer to uh, Naomi's heritage through Elimelech than Boaz was. So you see this scene there where Boaz goes to the gate and he finds this guy that's the more uh, closer related to, to uh, Naomi. And they have this little discussion. And, you know, at first, the guy says, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. You know, it sounds good. But then Boaz, who was ready for this, tell, reminds him of the other obligations. Yeah, you don't just get the land, you also get the woman. And then for whatever reason, who knows, he says, well, oh, no, 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 no. I can't do that because that would mess up my own inheritance to my kids to my own kids. And he didn't want this Moabite interloper getting part of his inheritance. And so he says, no, 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 I won't do it. So then Boaz says, well, is it okay with you if I do it? And they said, yeah. So he gave him a shoe. Uh, it's, you know, what do you do? Uh, shoes were, were often an insult. And a lot of times you spit on the person too when you, when you gave him a shoe. That was fun. Um, so, you know, they, they, they exchanged uh, the, the thing and, and Boaz agrees to take on the responsibility of kinsman redeemer and winds up with a third shoe. Um, and, <laughs> you know. Um, so let's look at some, some other applications from all this then. If you look at the whole story of Ruth, and I'm, I'm kind of carefully avoiding trying to go verse by verse because four, four chapters is impossible. But here's some things that we might glean from the book of Ruth. Number one, and these are like Selah things, you know. Pause and think about it. Although God is rarely mentioned as His provision, uh, His provision and direction are obvious in the book. So the name of God is not really mentioned in the book of Ruth. But yet, His hand is very obvious. Does that tell us something? Sometimes in our lives, in our daily lives, God is not obvious, but He's there. God is not always obvious, but He's there. And sometimes, you know, we, we look at circumstances and say, oh, that was lucky. No. No, not really. No such thing as luck. Especially for God's people. You know, we, we think about as chance would have it. I think that phrase is, is used in some of the translations of, of Ruth. As chance would have it, Ruth uh, came under the observation of Boaz. As chance would have it, she was doing this and this and that. Well, we know where the chance was. It wasn't really a chance, it was God. And God, God is a sovereign God, even though we may not admit it. Even though we don't want to admit it. Even though we'd rather ignore it sometimes. God is a sovereign God and He is there moving things around in the background sometimes, making it come out for our good. And so even though he doesn't get acknowledged, even though he is not obvious, and you know it's not like a handwriting on the wall kind of moment, he's there. He's there. And God's people don't have coincidence. There's no divine coincidence, but there is divine appointment. There is divine appointment. Have any of you ever had a divine appointment? Where you were just going around minding your own business in your day, and suddenly God puts someone in your path.
pathway that you didn't even see coming, and you have the opportunity to minister to them, or they have the opportunity to minister to you and say exactly what you needed to hear, or you do the same for them, and you go away from that saying, what? You know, that wasn't on my agenda today. That was not in, you know, in my Google calendar at all. So, uh, you, those are divine appointments. Those are the times when God intervenes, even when we're not aware of it. And those are some of the best moments I've ever experienced. Is, is being surprised by God. Now, you know, the other way around doesn't work. We think sometimes we surprise God. We don't. He already knew the end from the beginning. So we're never going to surprise him. Uh, it's not like when we confess. I was talking to somebody this week. It's not like when we confess, we surprise God and said, oh, I didn't know that about you. No. The word confession just means coming into agreement with what God already knows. <laughs> and so that's that's what it's about. There's... Moments like these that God seems furthest from us, that he may be plotting for our future abundance. That's a quote from Chuck Missler. It says, in the moments that God seems furthest, farthest from us, he may be plotting for our future abundance. When you don't see God, he's still there. When God is not, when, when God is not obvious, when you're outside a church, when you're in a place physically located where you say, hmm, I wonder if God is there. He's there. He's there. And some of the things that come together in those moments are really God orchestrating our lives according to His divine will and His divine purpose. God's purpose of redemption is carried out in everyday decisions of His people. Even when we're not aware. And the more that we have submitted ourselves to the will of God, the more that we have come into alignment with the Word of God, the more we are likely to make decisions according to the mind of Christ that allow Him and you know, propel you into His will, His purpose for that day, for that moment. So, remember, God's purpose of redemption is carried out in the everyday decisions, the routine, the mundane. God is still there. When we're bored out of our minds, God is still there. And we still have to be open to the opportunity that he's going to do something. And a lot of times he does it and we miss it. And it's not until much later when stuff starts to happen that we say, oh, that's what that was about. You ever been there? Yeah. I've been there a lot. You know, I go through stuff. Diane and I have gone through stuff in our marriage and in our ministry. And we're saying, why is this happening? What is going on here? And then maybe years down the road, we, we look back and say, oh, <laughs> it was God. It was God. He was, he was doing his thing. And it, it may not have affected us long term, but it affected somebody else that God was working in or doing something in or wanted to do something in. So let's get down to practical applications from Ruth. I have five of them listed here, so we're almost done. I have the big clock sitting back there staring at me, so it keeps me on time. First of all, God is concerned about all people, regardless of race, nationality, or status. He's an equal opportunity God. An equal opportunity God. Our God tells us that he will do what he wants to do with whomever he wants to do it. 
doesn't matter what kind of little borders or you know caste system we come up with. God has His own system, and He says, whosoever will may come. The story of Ruth demonstrates this, that the laws of God that were given to Israel to take care of the marginalized people. In Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, and Leviticus 25-25, and 19-9-10, the laws there tell us about the customs and they reveal the heart of God that God wanted His people to take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan, which is exactly what Marlene Kraft is doing in her ministry to the, to the widows. God tells us that's what He intends for His people to do. There's, in the New Testament, it repeats the same thing. Take care of the widows. Take care of the orphans. It's scriptural. God doesn't have any people that He says, oh no, they're not worth it. When we get to the story of Jonah later on, you'll see that, that Jonah fought that because he hated the Ninevites, but God sent him there anyway. In Jesus' ministry with the Samaritans, his disciples were kind of jaw-dropped at the fact that he wanted to go through Samaria and talk to a Samaritan woman. But that's the way God is. He talks to people that we wouldn't consider worthy of salvation. Do we get judgmental like that? Yeah, I'm afraid so if we do. Our own little slants and colorations and opinions and biases get dropped in there. And so we deem people, you know, well, they're not worth bothering with. Put them on the shelf and forget about them. God never does that. God uses the destitute, the disenfranchised, the dejected, the desperate as participants in His plan. And it's usually those very people who are the most willing to submit and listen to what God has to say. Because those of us who are religious have our own ideas. You know, we have these preconceived ideas, well, God can do this for me, instead of how can I do this for God? Hmm. Okay, number two. Uh, men and women are both equally important to God. In other words, He values character like loyalty and faithfulness that Ruth exhibits over our idea of, you know, well, men are more important than women, women are more important than men. And we get into this great debate. God sees us all the same. Because when, what does the Scripture say? God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but He looks on the heart. That word heart is motive. The motives. God is not worried about how long our hair is or how short our hair is, whether we're male or female. He looks at our hearts and He says, who is willing to do what I've asked Him to do? Obedience. And that's what God is looking at. Loyalty, faithfulness, character. The book of Ruth is all about loyalty, about Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. In fact, uh, the, the Hebrew word there, kesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, appears multiple times throughout the story. The word is used everywhere in the Bible to describe God's loyalty and faithfulness. And in Ruth, it's the characteristics that are uh, act, her, the way she acts toward others. It's the same word that is used. So Ruth is then reflecting the loyalty, the faithfulness of God and the way that she interacts, even though she's a Moabite woman, and we'll get to that in a minute. Later, Boaz sees Ruth coming to him in the threshing floor in an act of 
Loving kindness. It's the same word here. Kesed. Okay. Number three. There's no such thing as an unimportant person in God's eyes. Don't let your past hold you back. No such thing as an unimportant person. Ruth may have been a Moabite. She may have had Moabite genes, you know, genetics. But God knew who she was. God does not look at our genetic pool, our DNA, and decide. He looks at our hearts and decides. So there's no such thing as an unimportant. Every one of us are people that Christ died for. It doesn't matter how well we're dressed or how poorly we're dressed, how clean our face is or how much dirt we have on our face. It doesn't matter if we're you know, wearing what, $100, $200 shoes or if we're wearing sandals. Sometimes those sandals are expensive. <laughs> I, it just occurred to me. You know, <laughs> but God doesn't look at that stuff. There's no such thing as an unimportant person. Don't allow the enemy to use your past against you to say you're not worthy to serve God. None of us are worthy. His grace makes us worthy in Christ. In Christ. And so no, don't let anyone put your past in front of you and say, no, this far, no further. You can't do this because this is what you did in the past. God's grace is all about that. Saying, well, whatever you lack, I've got. And he does that for every one of us. Because guess what? Pastor Mark and I, we lack. There's stuff that we, we don't have. We just don't have it. And God steps in and says, well, I've got this for you to do, so here's something that you'll need to do that. And he'll do that for any one of us. It's not because we have these magic little cards that says we're ordained. It's because God is God and that's His nature. That's His character. He wants to do good things for His people and that's what He wants to do for you. Don't allow your past to hold you back. That's a lie from the enemy. Four, God uses little things to accomplish great plans. God uses little things to accomplish great plans. And I, you know, you think of CLF. CLF is a, is a little thing when you consider some of the megachurches, you know, as far as size-wise and congregation and stuff like that. But God uses little things to accomplish great plans. The important part of that is that we are to leave a legacy. Don't feel like because I'm just this small cog in the wheel or that I'm just this unimportant person that God can't use you to leave a legacy that will live on past you. God can do that exactly. And that's what happened with Ruth. If you look at the story of Ruth, you'll see that out of her, through this marriage that she took place uh, with Boaz, I told you about Obed, their son. Ruth and Boaz had Obed. Obed was the father to this guy named Jesse. Jesse was the father of this guy named David, who became the king of Israel, who is also mentioned in the gospel genealogies as being part of the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think one of the reasons, this is just an aside, but just you know, for us to think about, one of the reasons that Boaz was so, I don't know what you want to call it, sympathetic or open to Ruth, was the fact that in his own genealogy was Rahab. The scripture tells us that Rahab, the harlot, the Canaanite was part of the lineage 
of Boaz. And also, therefore, part of the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ is Rahab the harlot, the Canaanite, and Ruth the Moabite. What does that tell us? God will use whoever comes to him. It's not about where we were born. It's not about our last name and, and lineage. It's about what we do in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember that. God takes little things to accomplish great things. Finally, five. God has a Redeemer in place who can rescue us from the devastation of sin. We have to believe that redemption is possible. Don't allow the enemy to tell you, well, you've gone too far. You've done all these things in your past. God can't really use you. You're a broken vessel. You're a stained glass. Whatever. God will use whom He chooses to use. Our great Redeemer has a place that He can rescue us from wherever we are, whatever we've done, and set us on the right path and restore us from the devastation of sin. If I ask for a show of hands, I'm sure many of us could speak of or acknowledge the fact that sin is a devastating thing. Sin has devastated our lives in many different ways and many different aspects. But the fact is that our kinsman redeemer is able to do a more abundantly above all that we could ask or think in order to fulfill his purpose in our lives.